half an hour later, delivery come. Oh, that'll be 16 quid, please. I said, give him the 20. I went, take the 20. And he goes, are you sure? Are you sure? And I got quite aggressive with him. And I went, just take this 20 quid now. And I, I just shook him out of his boots, slammed the door on him, but I didn't gamble. And it took the temptation, took the chance away to be tempted to gamble. The first decision that I had to make in the morning was, when am I having my first bet? Not when am I getting to work or when am I going to get washed? Am I going to get clean clothes on? That was priority number one. I look back now and think, how did I carry on? 65 grand in debt, four credit cards, three loans, one maxed out, one secured loan on the house, not paying bills, hiding everything. So we could have been gambling this morning without anybody knowing about it. There has to be self-responsibility in it, as well as support that you get. Welcome to an episode of the Gambling Harm podcast, a podcast from Epic Risk Management, in which we'll be looking at all aspects of gambling harm, including the work done by Epic across various sectors. I'm Steve Cotton, and I'll be joined on every episode by a different guest or guests from Epic's Lift Experience team. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Craig Cornforth and Andy Margaret. On this episode, we will be talking about the road to recovery and everything that that entails. But before we get into that, Guys, can you each tell us the very short version of your journey with gambling and how you ended up at Epic Risk Management? So, yeah, my background is in sales. Um, I've been in, a, in, a, in the majority of that time in the car trade um, for sort of 20 odd years. Had a what you would class a probably a normal relationship with gambling throughout that time. Didn't cause me any, any issues or any, um, whether that be financial or sort of personal. Big sports fan, come from a, a big, a large family, five boys, all into sports, massively, particularly football. And um, my the, the beginning of my gambling problem was when the online availability came very quickly, became um, the ferocity of the number of bets more than the amounts at first, which then led on to other markets, slots, anything that became available, essentially in a, in, in a pretty short space of time over a couple of years, which led to me ending up stealing money from the business that I, I helped build up. Um, uh, eventually being caught uh, and had a year of sort of recovery and trying to, which included GA, et cetera. I know we'll probably go into a little bit later. Uh, and then my first job back from the cold, if you like, was to um, go and work in insurance sales, similar to the car trade, but it meant I didn't have to see anybody. I did it on a foot in a court contact centre. And then I was already in the space of trying to help people with addiction similar to myself and recovery, knowing it could get better. And that's what led us towards Epic. And you, Andy? Yeah, my relationship with gambling started when I was about 13, 14. My granddad liked to have a bet on the horses. My dad still does. And I kind of followed suit. So Grand National, one bet a year kind of race. Started to progress into weekends as well. When I got into my adult life, early 20s, my kind of work background was manufacturing. So I worked for Toyota Manufacturing in Derby. Rolls-Royce as well, massive employer in Derby. So manufacturing, shop floor kind of work was my kind of area of expertise. Similar to Craig, I didn't really have an issue with gambling. I had a great relationship with it. Just gambled on things I understood, football and horse racing. Really enjoyed it. I kind of missed the horse racing after a bit when I did stop, but it was availability of online again. I got to a point where I was playing poker and I thought I got really good at it. I won 20 tournaments online, got a big win, and I thought, I could do this again, again, and again. Why should I have to go to work 10, 11-hour shifts, come home stinking, filthy, greasy, when all I had to do was win it online? 
having four poker tables up, open up at any one time, playing cash tables, blackjack on the side. Started to gamble on things I didn't understand, like baseball, American football, betting on cartoon racing as well. And it kind of like led me to several beliefs of like having a suicide attempt, feeling about wanting to run away. I actually had my four-day-old son on my lap when it should have been the happiest time of my life, being a father for the first time. I was Googling ways to kill myself. That's where gambling addiction took me. I joined Epic about three and a half years ago, and now I go and talk and tell my story and give gambling harm awareness to schools up and down the UK. And one of the things that's come out of a lot of the lived experience guys who work for Epic is, is that telling the story is the best medicine, it's the best therapy. Would you agree with that? Because for many, it might bring back bad memories, and I'm sure it does bring back bad Mm -hmm. memories, but does it also help in a way? 100%. I mean, I think it's it's looked upon in different ways. And individually, I think it's important that whatever works for you is the best way for you. You know, there isn't a sort of one-size-fits-all method for anything in any sort of um, recovery, as far as I believe in. But absolutely, I find it cathartic. I do find it... In an unusual way, I still need that guilt, you know, so it's telling the story. Sometimes that can be fine. I deliver my lived experience story working with operators throughout the world. So it's people who are actually in the industry who some may say that were partly to blame to the, the, to the position that I got in. You know, it was my responsibility, but perhaps I wasn't looked after enough. And some days I will be break down and I'll be in tears. And there's certain things that I remember that I'd forgot. Every time I tell it, it's different. So it's not the same. I'd never really have it scripted. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm constantly remembering things. But and I, I, to answer the question, yeah, I think it's it's almost medicinal. Um, I get ch- I enjoy a challenge from people who, you know, who who maybe not agree or not understand. The key thing I think for it for me is I can't be wrong for the first time. I can get it wrong because it's me. My, it happened to me. So that's the part that I really enjoy, and it's almost a little bit of a reminder. Um, that I don't need to, I need to be careful because I could go back there. I've been there before. So that reminder that there's still that little bit of, of guilt, whatever it may be, regret, certainly, it's important to me still to be there. And for you, Andy? Yeah, I totally agree. I find it quite cathartic as well. And I can relate to what Craig says in terms of remembering things as well. So it was like little snippets out at my life that I didn't think about probably at the time or years on into my recovery for when I joined Epic and started telling my story in schools and doing the awareness, the education and stuff. It was like, oh, I remember doing that. I think that's worth talking about because that's how I felt at that time. That's how why I did it. And as I say as well, in terms of like probably talking to friends and family as well, and it's like all about making amends for me and I'm not going to please everybody. I've upset a lot of people in my life and some people, and quite rightly, will refuse to speak to me about what I did years previously. And uh, telling my story each day, I get that buzz of going into a school, telling it, hopefully making a difference, that someone's probably heard something like a story and think, wow, my mum and dad are struggling. My brother's struggling. My sister might be struggling. This might give me the confidence to go and say, look, I've just spoken to somebody today or I've heard somebody today tell their story that they've been struggling They've gone through to hell and back, but they've come out the other side. They've gone from rock bottom to where they are now. And every time I tell that story, I'm hopefully making a difference. Is as, you, as you progress through your recovery, 
I wonder if it gets does it get easier? I'm sure I'm sure it does. It's the cliche, isn't it, about time heals? But is it the case that the things that you used to bet on, the things that you know you'd watch probably in a different way. Can you still, can you watch football? I mean, if it's not your team, if it's two teams that you might have watched that you weren't interested in and the, your sole or your primary reason for watching that match would have been a bet, can you still watch football in that same way? It's a, it's a really, it's a very common question I'm asked. And it took me a little bit of realisation to, to, it's almost the flip side of that. I've been a huge football fan all my life, watched everything. And it was only really, in the in through a little bit further, my, my recovery went in stages. I think as as almost everybody I've met professionally or within recovery rooms, etc., does itself. I struggled to admit that I had a problem at first, which is ego and arrogance. All of that was still there. You've got to work on yourself before anything else. When I was in that state of then accepting that I was fallible, that I wasn't this superstar that I thought I was, which that the gambling brought me up to, um, and the and the you know the eventual um, sort of downfall and loss of everything, if you like. I realised I wasn't really watching football in the end. It was the thing that I loved most and I gambled on the most. The more the more ridiculous and ferocious a number of bets that I was doing on it, the minute that bet came down, the game was irrelevant to me. I would find something else to gamble on, whether it be slots, whether it be everything in the end. So at first I found it really difficult. I would think what's the, my instinct was what is the point of watching football if I can't have a bet on it. But very quickly... With the help of me, my, at this stage, I'd lost me, me found my own home and I'd been had to move back in with my parents at, at 46, 47, I think. So I used to, I, I, I hid away an awful lot at first. But I was really fortunate to have a very understanding father who had never had come across anything like this before, but a wise, you wouldn't mind me seeing a wise old man. Uh, once I started watching football again, I realised I loved the game. It had nothing to do with gambling. So it, I probably watch more now than I did then. If that, and my my current, my, I shouldn't say current, my partner would certainly back me up on that. Uh, that I do watch probably too much, if I'm honest. But it's um, for from. I think it's a really fair question to ask because somebody would say, "Why, if that was your major reason for watching whatever event it may be, how can you how can you still do it when you haven't got that buzz or whatever you've got in it?" Well, that was a transition. That was only a small part of my 35 years of watching sport. I only had a really small part of that, which it became a problematic gambling bit. So you almost re-fell in love with the reason for what the game is, which as a Newcastle fan has been pretty difficult to do until recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a, a common question that I get, to be honest, and it's it's an interesting one. Because it, briefly, I know we talked about horse racing pre we started recording. I gambled on horse racing, but I've got apps. I wouldn't watch it if there was... If I had free tickets to the Grand National, not the fact that I'm a recovering gambling addict, because I deal with the gambling industry every day, I've got no interest in it. So conversely, I used to gamble on things that I didn't have any interest in it purely for the fact that I could gamble on it. Right. How about you, Andy? Is that a similar experience? Yeah, it's, it's probably the opposite in terms of the sports as well. I'm a keen football fan, season ticket holder at Derby for my sins. Um, so when Craig talks about Newcastle being in the, in the mire at times... Believe me, being a Derby fan is just as bad. <laughs> but in terms of like gambling, football betting, I could just leave it and didn't have to watch the game. The horse racing for me, when I first stopped, is kind of my methadone to keep watching it because I enjoyed it as a spectator sport as well. And it was like when I, in, similar to Craig, small part of my problematic gambling was only within about a year or so. I was gambling from the age of 14 to 27 and majority of that time I was gambling within my means. I could afford budgeting myself. If I won, great. If I lost, I never chased. Just gambling on things are understood. 
when I stopped, when I had to stop gambling, it was a horse racing for me because it was my baby. Everything else went out of control, football, betting on cartoon racing, poker, slots. But horse racing was always my baby and I kept control of it. So it was very difficult for me to like break away from watching it as a spectator because I enjoyed it as a spectator sport as well. And those first couple of years, it was like my methadone. Right, I'm not betting on it, but I'm not even thinking about having a bet on it either. It was more of the fact that weaning myself off from gambling on it and trying to probably end up le- losing my baby, so to speak. I had to let go eventually. And nowadays, if it's on in the background, it's on in the background. It doesn't bother me anymore. It's not going to crash my attention for a couple of years at all. So, Did you think you were testing yourself you know, early on when you were saying, to prove to yourself I can watch this without gambling? I think it was, yeah. Oh, because yeah. I was like, I used to mention it in my GA meetings as well. And it's pretty much... What I mean, whatever's said in there stays in there, but let's just say it's frowned upon. You're probably yeah, watching ho- watching horse racing as a purely spectator sport. You're keeping your like keeping it in, basically. You're leaving that door ajar, keeping that cooker bur- burning just in case you go back. And it probably was a testing mechanism for a good six months, first year off being off from gambling, and I had to take my time, I had to wean myself off it, and. Day by day, as we say, we take things day at a time. Mm-hmm. I knew deep down in my soul that I had to give up watching it and just had to break the chain, break that link between gambling and watching something I adored. What about temptation? And uh, I've spoken to, to some of your colleagues who've said, yeah, I can go in a casino. It's not a problem. I can I can be in a in a physical space. I can... I can, I can watch football I can go to the races I can see an advert on the television when people mention us a grand national sweepstake and then suddenly correct themselves and feel guilty I say don't be silly one of your colleagues earlier said he's 99.98% sure he could only eight he could have <laughs> he could he could gamble and and, and not be okay. and not yeah and not fall into into addiction again but how do you guys feel about about the temptation, whether it's peers at the fir- at first? And that could work either way, whether they're saying, come on, we're all doing this, yep. or whether they're going the other way and excluding you. And almost, someone admitted earlier, there was a separate WhatsApp group that they weren't in yeah, yeah. because their friends feel like we can't talk about gambling in front of this person. Well, I think it comes back to what we spoke about earlier, that it's openness and it's it's honesty, it's transparency. it's uh, But it's different for everybody. Everybody's journey, everybody's levels of confidence, everybody, you know, different parts of recovery from it. I don't think I decided, I think it's just part of my personality that very early on, once I accepted and understood that I had an addiction and it was something that was beyond my control, I wasn't ashamed of it. So if anything, I probably said it too much. I would have taxi drivers, I could feel almost going to pull off the road when they said, what have you been up to today? And I would spend 20 minutes telling them what I've been doing in GA. You know, they would just do it out of politeness more than anything else. So I almost embraced the fact that I wasn't ashamed of it, that I, that I finally understood that I didn't do this on purpose, what I was doing. I, I was, I, it was out of my control. So I think it's a difficult place to even imagine to be in, to say, how could I not be tempted? Maybe not tempted, but I'm sure everybody is surrounded by it. 
you know, it's part of the awareness that we we do from Epic that we find it's very important. And it's getting, I'm fortunate enough to have a, um, a stepson now in my life who I, who I love to bits. And it's we, we I even talk to him about it, about, you know, how much exposure that he's had at 12 years old compared to when I was 12 years old. It didn't exist. You know, you just didn't see the amount that it did. Um, I take, I know who it is, obviously, who said that, um, 99.98. He must be dropping a bit because I'm sure it used to be 99.9. But I accept that as well because some people, it's 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 a funny um, world, lived experience, and particularly recovery. Because what's worked for me and what's worked for Andy and what's worked for all of my colleagues feels so real because it is real and feels so correct. It's almost difficult not to say it to somebody, you should do it my way. Because I can show you the state that I was in and I managed to get out of it. So surely you should be doing the same as me. You've got to drop your ego. It's a little bit again to get rid of that and just accept that whatever works for people. So I've got no problem. Um, you said, could you go to a casino? Well, I was in one yesterday with, with work for the first time in, in six years that I've been in one. <clears throat> um, I suppose it helps the fact that in my role, I deliver training and, and lived experience to the industry. So I'm surrounded in it a lot. But, you know, I'm 51. If I, if I gave in a temptation... I don't know if I'd make fifty five. Like it's, uh, it's everywhere and everything, isn't it? You've got to uh, you've got to take be accept your responsibilities. You know, um, you know, for what you need and what you want to do. I suppose. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think in my first couple of years in recovery, away from betting, is more about abstinence, and the temptation there I think is greater when you're new off. You think, oh, it's great, it's great for a few weeks, You've gone to GA, getting everything off your chest. You told your wife, you told your other, your, your husband, um, you told your family, you've got everything off off your chest, but then you've given it everybody else. Mm. And then that few weeks, you're feeling great and everything. Then all of a sudden, you clock a bookmaker in the corner of your eye walking down the high street and you think, what if, what if? And obviously, I put my barriers in place so I wasn't carrying any money or anything. But the temptation's still there. That urge is still there. I, it's it's difficult. And I always say, like, the first year or two is always the hardest. You wake up in cold sweat because you've just dreamt about gambling. And the temptation can be always there. And if I always talk about time, money, and opportunity, all three of them come together, a highly likely chance you're going to gamble if you're trying to be in recovery. I always tell the story of Boxing Day 2007 in the UK it's a massive gambling day for sports football darts horse racing etc and Becky my wife she left me with a £20 note the most amount of money I had since I stopped gambling eight months previously and I was desperate to gamble Becky had gone down south to see family and friends uh, and I was on my own with this 20 quid and I wanted to gamble. I had no contact with anybody else to talk about how I was feeling because that was my, my, kind of my coping mechanism with regards to temptation. I needed, what do I do? I need to get rid of it. Oh, I know. Yeah. Chicken curry, fried rice, chow mein, prawn crackers. Half an hour later, delivery come. Oh, that'll be 16 quid, please. I gave him the 20. I went, take the 20. He goes, are you sure? Are you sure? And I got quite aggressive with him. And I went, just take this 20 quid now. And I, I just shook him out of his boots, slammed the door on him. But I didn't gamble. And it took the temptation, took the chance away to be tempted to gamble. And as I say, the first two years, that temptation's there. And over the years, it wanes for me. In terms of like going in settings, I was in the same casino yesterday with Craig, 
didn't bother me at all. But it's not a one size fits all recovery no, or the temptation not. as well. Oh, GA saved my life. Not everyone's cup of tea. Everyone's got weird and wonderful ways to stay off that expert. Be it going through a helpline, phoning a Chinese takeaway, staying off that bet, taking things one day at a time for me works. And if people want to take bits out of my story, bits out of my recovery, great. They can discard the stuff they don't like. What works for them works for them. We say the same when we, you know, when all the trainers we deliver, I use trying to, I've got a weird brain in terms of it's, it's, I did a training course recently and a woman nailed us she got, when we did a, um, like a colours test thing. And it's, I have been told for the first time in my life, I speak to think rather than think to speak. When she said it, I went, oh, she's got us. And it is, I'm a very verbal, um, visual person when, I, when I've got thoughts and stuff. So when, I, when we deliver our sessions, I tend to do it with a lot of analogies or with a lot of things from the past that's happened to us. But I agree with Andy in terms of the first, the early time was very Everybody, more so the people around me were more worried than I was. I remember at the time because I had, you know, I had nothing left. My Financially, my parents were wonderful with us and gave me a few quid when I first moved back in again. And later down the road, I remember my mother had said that she'd said to my old man, you know, you, you think you should have given him, it wasn't a lot of money, like a couple hundred quid, you think you should have given that, you know, what if he gambles? And and my father was very, you know, I've said already what a wise old fellow he is, and he said, well, if he's going to, he's going to. It's not a test, you know. It's um, mm. And particularly because the troublesome, you know, the, the the gambling that I did came from doing it remotely, doing it, my phone sitting a foot away from us. And I say every time we do train, and I could, it's a, you know, it's a cliche that's used in this industry. I'm not now saying you've got a casino in your pocket. Well, it's true. So we could have been gambling this morning without anybody knowing about it. There has to be self-responsibility in it, as well as support that you get. Interestingly, what Andy said as well, it is quite often forgotten about, and it's a thing at Epic where, def- where in the process of trying to write training about, do more sessions about, the family's forgotten about. As an addict, I recovered at a much faster rate than people around me did. You know, the harm that I caused to people that there's still some I haven't had a chance, and hopefully one day I will you know, maybe not make amends, at least have a chance to be able to apologize or whatever I need to do for. Um, but they, um, and they, they, you know, they don't recover at the same rate as somebody on the way back up does. Um, and it's important that they're recognized. Another thing that I realized at the time through, again, brilliant advice from the old man, I look back and I cringe a little bit because he was so right, but it's a good thing. And I found this a number of times when I've, um, when I was going to a conference in Amsterdam last year, a guy came and sat on the plane seat in front of me who I hadn't seen for about five years. That time span for me means since my sort of gambling stopped and me, me life fell apart, if you like. And he was a very close friend who I used to gamble with, used to drink with, all sorts going back in the day. And I'd never seen him for a long time. And he sat down and I, and I almost thought, should I speak to him? I did. And we ended up stopping off and having a couple of pints early in the morning at Skipball Airport. He was flying off to South Africa. And I thought everybody around knew what had happened to me because it was so big and so important in my life it almost felt like everybody did and my father said to us at that time the world doesn't revolve around you you know son nobody's bothered everybody else has got things going on in their life it's almost like this could be today's big story to you is tomorrow's fish and chip paper you know Uh, and john the guy who i met on the plane had absolutely no idea I wondered where you'd gone almost. Yeah. And I'd built it up to be such an enormous crime of the century, this thing that had happened. You forget that other people have got stuff going on in their lives, you know? So it's, um, I found that interesting um, and quite refreshing, to be honest. It, and it gave us a, probably the courage, I would say, to not, I've never had a problem speaking about it, but to get back in contact with other people from pre-gambling, you know? It's funny, I mean, like you say, 
it's kind of puffing your chest out in a way. Once you've told but, it and it's gone all out there, you think, yeah, look at me, I'm an addict. Well, plus it's because it's I think... It's a bit Hollywood, really, isn't well, it? it? And it's also because I think initially you're... Yeah, my, certainly in mine, I know yeah. Andy and I know each other very well, and I know he was the same, that my human instinct was, well, if I'm going to tell you something bad that I've done, I expect you to think, oh, what a horrible person you are. I haven't had that once in five and a half years from whether it be people who know me very well, I gave blood a couple of weeks ago and, you know, you're lying there for half an hour and got speaking to the lady who did it. And because yeah. I'm, um, you know, we, I fly quite a lot and do a lot of miles, um, she asked, wait, no, I had to tell her where I'd been in the last 12 months. It sounded quite glamorous. Uh, it's not when you're sitting around for six hours and layovers waiting for flights and stuff. But when I told her what I did for a living, I got almost the same response back in amazement that it exists. Yeah. Almost thanks, well done, you should be proud of yourself. But at first, in early recovery, you think they're going to go, what a terrible human being you are. Nobody's ever done that. It's a, how can you do that? Yeah, it doesn't happen, does it? How, you're like, doesn't really exist, does it? Why couldn't you just give up? It's all that kind of stigma attached to it as well. And it's funny when Craig talks about like what he does for a living and things, because I'm exactly the same thing. When I'm like, say I'm in a hotel overnight before I'm going to be doing a school, I get chatting to someone in the bar or in the restaurant and stuff. And uh, oh, what do you do for a living? And it's, well, I'll go and talk about my recovery from addiction in schools. And the first things they always say is drugs, alcohol. And they go, no, no. And then they're really racking the brain strike. Then obviously I'll drop in. So, oh, gambling. Then I tell them a brief bit of what I've done, how horrible it was, expecting, like, how lucky are you? And he goes, oh, they go, oh, that's amazing. That's well, great. Well done. And yeah, well done. Usual. And the same, same response yeah. every single time. It's fascinating. And you, you mentioned earlier about, about the impact on others. Now, we, we, we've done a, an episode purely on that. So I don't want to get too much into it, but it, it is obviously a part of recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing Alan Smart said was he forgets sometimes that, you know, the people that he's lied to, he's, he forgets, he's kind of, he's telling the truth now and he doesn't need to be guilty. So he said, sometimes I'll be late and I'm, cause I'm in a traffic jam. And that's the sort of excuse he might've used before Absolutely. when he was lying. So yeah. he said, I am genuinely in a traffic jam, but his partner doesn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and do you encounter that now, now that you're, you're in the position that you're in? Do you have issues like that where you think, well, this might have been something that I would have said before that wasn't true. Now it is. Do you, do you almost, do you second guess think, what people are thinking I th sometimes? I think, I think again, going back to when you first stopped gambling, you used to tell lies all the time. So I'll probably be stood in the bookmakers for six hours when I've probably just gone out, oh, I'm just going to go out and do the shopping for you. And then trying to find out, I've got a ton of missed calls, trying to find out where I am and stuff like that. Or like you say, in a traffic traffic jam I can't get by or anything I'm trying to account for my time I was spent gambling and uh, when I first stopped I'm having to like prove I'm not I'm telling the truth I'm being really honest with you now and I'm like yeah yeah and I can look back now and I think yeah I wonder what Becky really thought about me there especially when I've been recovery early stage of recovery does she think he's pulling a fast one here and I'm being, I'm being genuine, but she knew I was being genuine because I'm like over-exaggerating it. Mm. You're trying to look, I really am telling the truth here. I've, I've been a right lying toad for so long and it was come naturally off the tongue when I was lying. Now I'm like over-exaggerating. Honestly, I am being very honest with you and stuff like that. And you're looking back even now 16 years on and I'm stuck in that traffic jam or... I'm stuck at the shops or stop at work. I've got to stop over like a quite, quite quick turnaround or something. And then she, she believes me. And 
because it's true, because it's honest. I had to build up that trust that I am being honest because it's the biggest thing I think you lose in gambling addiction. It's not the money. It's the trust in you. And rebuilding that trust, rebuilding that honesty in you is the number one thing to make amends to the ones you love. It's interesting because it's different for me. There was only me, so I wasn't lying to anyone other than yeah. me. In my gambling uh, life, that's not entirely true. I was in a relatively newish relationship, and that so I, I, I take that back. I destroyed that relationship because of the fact that um, my gambling led me to the point where I was stealing money from the business I worked for, um, which came shattered everything down. And that, it was exactly that. It was the lock, lack of trust from my previous partner. The fact that every it was everything a lie, whereas in in reality. All that I was, all that I was lying about, if that's the way to say it, was the fact that I was having to get more money to carry on my gambling. So I almost had to learn to trust myself a bit more, in terms of the looking after. I didn't quite a lot of the time in GA and another recovery the settings they'll say give over, and I've seen it work for lots and lots of people. Hand over your finances to somebody else, only have an allowance for money. What you're doing, you know, take all, put all these barriers. I didn't have that. I was thought, you know, I wasn't a kid. I was forty-seven. I'd had my own business. I was back at my parents, just me and my dog, um, and I had to sort of do it myself. And I'm not saying this to expect plaudits or to expect anyone to say double well done. It's more so that I look at the likes of Andy and his partner and Alan, who you know, who's very close to me, Dan, who's our boss. Um, that's three examples of who within our our uh, very close circle that we work with. I find it amazing that they're still together with their partners. That it's incredible to me that the fact that on both sides of it, that the 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 wives partners have. Um, it's it's almost unbelievable. It's awe inspiring how strong the relationships have been and the troubles they've gone through. I'm not saying mine was easier because I sometimes get the same feedback when I say the relationship that I'm in now is the first time in my life that I've ever been completely honest. Uh, my partner, I met her, um, she'd read my diary before I'd ever met her. I kept a diary very early on at my, in my darkest time because I couldn't really, I didn't really have anyone to speak to. I, I was that sort of person and I had to write down the thoughts that I had. I've still got it. I use it in my training and I do now. Anyone's welcome to have a read of it. And it's more sort of sure that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that you can, some of my darkest times, I had a failed suicide attempt, some of my darkest times were in that time when I couldn't see anywhere out. And my, um, I always I try and catch myself, but can't help but say it, my current partner, which sounds like I'm waiting for the next one, and it couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth, um, not only knows me as version two of me, if you like, probably version 22 for people who've known us longer, and we'll talk, you know, we're very honest. We, we, you know, we never go to bed on an argument. We rarely argue, if I'm honest, because we're so open with each other. And that's the gift that I've been given of, 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 the, re, of, of the recovery that I've had, of, of getting through, um, and you know, whatever the addiction may be with that. And it's almost to the case that it's, a, I think, and Andy will probably disagree on it, he has told us before that he does, as has Alan, I think it's easier for me because... She doesn't have to second guess. Although at times I will say when we're watching programs on addiction or whatever it may be, or a film and something happens, and I went, oh, I've done that. And she looks at this like, I can't, like it's a completely different person. Let's see if you give us 10 minutes, I can get a few people on the phone who will confirm that I did. You know, so it's uh, it's interesting. And again, I think it goes back to the thing that we, the, the subject that's come up a few times on this is it's different. It's absolutely different for everybody. The end result's hopefully the same. You know, we get there, however you get there. And it, I, I firmly believe it's just as important to to accept that it's got to be different. You know, everybody, everyone in this room's had a different journey in their life to however they've got a day. You all do similar jobs, but yeah. you haven't done the same thing to get here. 
it's no different than anything else you do, I don't think. As we come to the end, one, one thing I want to talk to you about is basically your mind. When, when you're in that kind of dark place and you know, you, you, your thoughts are taken up with gambling, your time is taken up with gambling, and your, you know, your finances are, are taken up with gambling. N- now that you've freed yourself from those three key things, how, and, and if you are able to, to compare the two, how much better is life now that you can walk around without that baggage, without that constant kind of thought about where the money's coming from, where the next bet's coming yeah. from? Do, do you actually appreciate it now? Is it... It's almost like going for a nice walk, or you know, when the sun comes out and you've been stuck the in a room. The sky's bluer, the flowers smell nicer. It's not instantly like that, but the the again, I can only really say it. You can, everybody can only you tell their own story, and they can only say it from their point of view. And the one thing that came to me, and it helps again, going back to to Diane, my partner, is that we, we you know I've told her everything that we've gone through a lot. And one of the first things, interestingly, the first thing you said there when you talked about it was, was money. You know, inst- I think it's a thing that everyone's ingrained to. And when you hear someone's a gambler, and I, like, almost the first question you get is, "How much did they lose?" It's not always money. So that's if from, it's the least thing that I lost, if I'm honest, yeah. was money. Great. You know, it can be time, relationships. So it's the, the one thing that came from my from um, my partner was when I sh- I recently went back and printed off my last year's bank statements up until my fall off the cliff edge. It's taken us nearly five years to do because I was terrified. Uh, and I, I marked off um, every transaction, turned it into like a pie chart. Again, visually, it helps me to see that sort of stuff, that it's actually there. And when I showed this to Diane, the f- almost instinctively thing without her thinking was, how did you have time? Well, I had time because that was the only thing that was important to us. I didn't have time for everything else. That's the difference if you work it back over rather than work it. How did you have time? No, 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 no. You make time for that. Everything else becomes a byproduct of your gambling. So I can't really describe how it felt like that because it felt normal. That Once I was at that stage, that was the one thing. The, the first decision that I had to make in the morning was, when am I having my first bet? Not when am I getting to work or when am I going to get washed? Am I going to get clean clothes on? That was priority number one. There has to be a, a journey between me standing and not being sure whether to put 10 or 20 quid on and getting to that stage. And that's essentially what we at Epic try, are trying to do with everybody, control that journey between them. So it's, um, yeah, I, I kind of remember is the honest answer, but I can looking back see how on earth did I manage to run a business, you know, steal money, lie to everybody, but still put the number of bets badly obviously on at the same time so it's um it's a question i think that if you ask i don't know how often you'll ask it today or in all the film that you do but it'll be really interesting for us to watch back and see the answer because i think there'll be a um a sort of linear story between them all yeah i can pretty much agree with uh, craig when i used to come home from night shift six in the morning nine o'clock wake up i've got my time to gamble and as i said before time's the biggest killer in addiction you're giving up your time to the feed the addiction, feed the gambling that you want to do. And uh, I look back now and I think, how did I carry on? 65 grand in debt, four credit cards, three loans, one maxed out, one secured loan on the house, not paying bills, hiding everything, doing a 10, 11 hour, really physically demanding job at Toyota. And I had to graft, really graft there. Cooking tea, being at being at family events, how did I manage it? And I guess I could see it as like where my life is now. I'm on a path, nice, clean, calm path. 
the calms resided, destruction's gone. In my time gambling, towards the end, I was feeling destructive. I didn't care if I won or lost. Didn't really care one bit. I just as long as I could feed that monster. I mean, if I wasn't gambling, I was like, what do I do? I, I, I feel like I, I, want, I just want to like, give up on everything. I used to go out on the motorways, drive a couple of junctions up and down the motorway, up down the M1, 70, 80, 90 mile an hour. And instead of gambling, I'm trying to gamble with my life. So I'm taking a risk with my life by closing my eyes, seeing how far I can drive. Doing crazy things like that. And you look back and that, that's like a gamble. Yeah, but it's a risk. you're going to kill myself. It's yeah, a risk. It's risk I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. And luckily, Becky stood by me and life got better. I could realize that I don't need to have that destruction in my life anymore. It took time. Staying off from gambling, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I've done, I've done, you probably hear about my stories of running and um, in this year's London Marathon as we speak. So I've just finished my training and I've done lots of different physical challenges and testing myself and everything and giving up gambling, something I did love, I did enjoy. I just let get total control and total disregard for everybody else hardest thing I ever did and best thing luckily man. yeah Becky stand by me forever and I am lucky I'm grateful and I pinch myself every day doing what I do brilliant Greg Andy thanks so much for joining no us no problem enjoyed it really insightful really great to hear and um, that's all from this episode but uh, we'll be back with another one soon thanks guys thank you thank you